Hi, it's Krista. Before we start today, I wanted to share three exciting events and campaigns that are taking place this fall at Diabetes Canada. First, you can sign up for our fundraiser, Lace Up to End Diabetes. This hybrid event is not your average fundraising walk or run. Lace Up is all about fostering a safe, inclusive space where lacers of any fitness level and ability can unite to support people living with all types of diabetes in a way that works with their lives and busy schedules, all while raising funds for life-saving programs and research. Next, in November, we're bringing people who live with type 1 and type 2 diabetes and their caregivers together for Diabetes Canada Connect. That's a free week-long virtual diabetes education and community event aimed at fostering meaningful connections and learning. And finally, for the healthcare professionals in our listenership, the Diabetes Canada CSEM professional programming will be held at Vascular 2023 from October 25th to 29th at the Palais des Congrès de Montréal. Six host organizations, one fee, thousands of chances to share insights in vascular health with leaders in the field, colleagues, and peers from Canada and around the world. Register for that today at vascular2023.ca. Interested in any of these events? The links to all of them are included in our show notes. Driving with diabetes shouldn't be a challenge. But in some cases, managing blood sugars while behind the wheel can lead to extremely difficult situations. I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Ian Bloomer about considerations when driving while using insulin. Dr. Bloomer is an endocrinologist and a lecturer at the University of Toronto. He is also the author of several books about diabetes. Welcome to the show. It is so wonderful to have you here. Oh, thanks so much, Krista. Thanks for inviting me on. Wonderful. Well, before we start, I wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us who you are, what you do. Sure. So I, uh, I'm an endocrinologist, but I really focus my practice on the management of diabetes. And I've been doing this for a heck of a long time, 38 years now. And I always tell people I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world because after 38 years, I still enjoy each and every day going to work. That is an amazing thing. I think that's something that we all strive for is to do something that we love. And so I was lucky enough because I also get to do something I love. I was interviewing your wife for something else that I was recording and she is an expert in another area. And she was telling me about the work that you are doing with diabetes and driving. And I thought this was so interesting and I thought it would be something that the listeners would be really excited to hear about. So can you tell me a little bit about what it is that inspired you to look at diabetes and driving? Sure. Well, I think listeners would be interested in this. So having worked in the diabetes field for so long, there's something that happened to one of my patients a few years ago, which really changed my approach to managing diabetes. And I've been doing my best to make people living with diabetes and their providers aware of this issue. And to be honest, I'm just thrilled that this has been brought to your attention because I sort of feel like I want to preach from the mount about this because it's so important. So people who have diabetes who are treated with certain types, not all types, but certain types of medications, in particular insulin, become prone to episodes of low blood sugar. 
And as any of your listeners who experiences low blood sugar or low blood glucose more scientifically would know, it can impair their ability to function and in particular impair their ability to think and to do complex tasks like driving. Anyhow, Krista, what happened to you a few years ago, and by the way, this is public domain, so I'm not breaching patient confidentiality. A lovely patient of mine, he's, he has type 1 diabetes, type 1 being the type that typically requires insulin from the get-go. He's always looked after his diabetes really well and attentively and has had excellent glucose control. Anyhow, a few years ago, he was at a restaurant out in Durham region where I work, and he did exactly as he had been taught by the diabetes educators and from me and which is to follow the Diabetes Canada recommendations for driving. So that is, you check your glucose before you get in the car to make sure you're not low. And in fact, make sure you're not even close to being low. And that way you help protect yourself from experiencing a low glucose when you're driving. And he did that and his glucose level was normal and at the level that the guidelines say is safe to drive. So he got in his car and started driving. And about a half an hour later, he did not realize that his glucose level was starting to go low, like below normal. And he also didn't realize that it was impairing his ability to function and to drive. And sadly, tragically, he didn't realize he was going through a stop sign and he T-boned another car and he killed the occupant of that other car. And that was horrific, absolutely horrific. Compounding the tragedy was that he was then charged criminally by the courts, by the Crown of Ontario, for criminal negligence causing death. And he went to trial. That in itself, I thought, was rather shocking. And I can tell you, when I speak to any of my colleagues in the diabetes world, they were shocked by that. And when I talk to any patient of mine who's on insulin about driving, they were shocked that it could lead to criminal charges. In any event, it did. And I was called to testify. Now, I've never before testified in court, and I've certainly never testified in a criminal proceeding. And I explained to the court as best I could that this was a gentleman who looked after his diabetes really well, but that sometimes, in my opinion, bad things happen to good people. I felt it wasn't that he didn't look after his diabetes well that led to this tragedy. It was just diabetes is a challenging disease to manage. Low blood sugar can occur despite people's best intentions to avoid it. And this horrible outcome was a sad result of that. Anyhow, my testimony clearly didn't persuade the jury because the jury convicted him. And I think this would stun almost everybody listening right now. He was sentenced to penitentiary. And he actually spent two years in incarceration because of having a low blood sugar at the wrong time with a horrible outcome. I'll never forget my time in court to the day I die, because I was there and I was looking at my poor patient. You know, he'd never had a speeding ticket in his life. He was a hardworking businessman working for a company. I won't mention the company and looked after himself. Well, his A1C and A1C is an indicator of diabetes control was excellent. Anyhow, I looked at him in court and his wife beside him and I thought, wow, like this is such a horrible thing. But then I looked over at the family of the person that had died, and they were distraught, tearful. And I thought, oh, my God, everybody is losing today. 
regardless of the verdict that was going to be issued, this was a tragedy for everybody. Anyhow, my patient ended up, as I mentioned, being convicted, going to prison, penitentiary of all things, not, not just like the local jail, and was there for quite a while, and then, you know, was let go on parole, and, and now his parole is finished. And I was so upset about that whole situation. I was upset for the family, obviously, of the person he killed. I was upset for my patient that that changed my life professionally. And I said, you know what? I have to make sure that everybody in the diabetes world who treats people with insulin or other drugs that can cause low sugar, and everybody who has diabetes on those medicines needs to be aware of this because people aren't. They might be in a perfunctory way, but not in a meaningful way where they really see that something horrible can happen. So I wrote an article about this case and the broader issue with Anne Kenshaw and Gary Lewis and the lawyer as well. We wrote it and it was published in the Canadian Journal of Diabetes. It's available online. And I've presented to doctors around the country on this topic. And I really think that the message still is not getting out loud and clear. And I think that doctors have and nurse educators have to make sure they inform patients about what can happen the possible horrible outcomes, really, how to avoid it. And we need to make sure patients are aware of the risks of driving and hypoglycemia and how to avoid it. And, you know, I'll, I'll pause for there. But during the podcast, I'm happy to chat about measures I think that should be undertaken to reduce that. But that's my very long-winded synopsis of the horrors that really led to my passion about this topic. Yeah. And I think for people listening, it will be really shocking and surprising, which is one of the reasons I thought it would be an interesting topic because so many of the people in my life live with type one, so many of them drive. They know that the rule, you know, if you have a low wait 45 minutes before you drive, they know about the general overall rules. But I think this would be, as you said, shocking to any of them. Yeah. And it's not an isolated incident. When I was preparing to write that article, I um, looked up to see how common this was. And I found all sorts of other cases where this has happened around the country. It's not a rarity. I think this was probably the first time someone's gone to penitentiary as a result, so far as I know, but this is not a rare circumstance. And in fact, and again, this is public domain, I'm not breaching confidentiality. I was called to testify, not because it was a patient of mine, but I was called to testify as an expert witness last year about someone that was driving when low, low blood sugar, they were driving the wrong way on a highway. And I think all of us here on the news about someone driving the wrong way on a highway, and you say, oh, that person's drunk, you know, what kind of lunatic was that? But this guy wasn't drunk. He had a low blood sugar at the most inopportune time in the world. And he got into a head-on car accident. Again, this is public domain. People can look it up on the internet. It happened in Ontario. Now, he wasn't convicted. But as a result of the accident, he was left permanently disabled, and the poor person he hit was also permanently disabled. I mean, this is just a tragedy. And it's not about blame. It's about avoidance, about education, about doing everything we can to prevent it from happening again, because we need to change this situation. One of the things that I'm thinking about as we're having this discussion is now we have all of these technologies that people with type 1 often use in order to avoid going particularly low. Is someone wearing a device less likely to deal with this or no? Well, that's a great question. And it's something I think a lot about. And I've looked at the literature on that as well. 
So the traditional way of which people with diabetes monitor their glucose is with finger prick testing. And I'm sure 99.9% .9 of listeners who have diabetes have done that from time to time. But the problem with finger prick testing, it just gives you a moment in time. So, you know, I have some patients who are very diligent blood glucose testers. They might check four times a day and they'll show me appropriately with pride their readings and say, look how often I'm measuring. And I say, that's awesome. I said, you're checking tons and more than most people. And if you check four times a day, it means you know what your glucose level is four minutes out of 1,440 per day, which means 99% of the time you have no clue. I say, that's like driving from here to Montreal, looking at your speedometer four times. And you may think the rest of the time you're driving the right speed, but if your speedometer is broken, you don't know, you're guessing. So I don't think that's a sufficient way. And this poor patient of mine that got in this accident, that's a perfect illustration. He did as he was told. His glucose level was seven. It was normal. But half an hour later, it was low. So I really strongly feel that everybody with diabetes on insulin, if they're going to be driving, should be using continuous glucose monitoring, where glucose readings are provided in real time continuously. So that if your glucose level is normal at time zero and you get in your car, if your glucose is heading down, you know about it before it gets too low. If someone was in that situation and they were seven and their glucose was 6.5, 6, 5, 4.5, it's all normal, but they could see it's heading down and they better get off the road and deal with it before it gets low and their driving becomes impaired. And we have devices that do that. Dexcom makes a device like that. Medtronic does. There's the Libre, which doesn't yet in Canada provide moment-to-moment -moment results, but it does the newest version. It too has an alarm that warns you if you're heading low. And there's a new update to the Libre 2 coming out imminently that actually does make it a real-time device. So I think that everybody with diabetes who drives and is on insulin should be using one of those devices. But moreover, I think people with diabetes who don't drive should be using those devices. I don't think people should be in the dark. I mean, sure, driving can be hazardous, but crossing the street, riding a bike, any of those things can be hazardous too. And I think that people with diabetes need to be aware at all times of what their glucose level is to be safe for themselves and to be safe for other people as well. And no, I know I, I'll get pushback from people and they say, well, why are you forcing me to wear a device? It's onerous, it can be costly, et cetera, et cetera. But I think safety is paramount, in addition to the health benefits, of course. So I guess my personal experience with this, my professional experience, has made me feel almost dogmatic about its importance. And I really think the time has come for this to be something that the default is to be wearing such a device. It shouldn't be elective if you're involved in any sort of hazardous activity. That's my strongly held opinion anyhow. Well, I think that for those people who are advocating for more affordable access, this would be a really great reason for them to speak to that again. So I think it is very, very important. Some people choose not to wear technologies. I know we've had Dr. Mike Riddell on the show several times talking about how sometimes these technologies are not as in the minute, up to the minute, as we would hope from, you know, he's looking at athletes. So he's looking at people who want to know when they're running or biking what their blood sugar is in the moment. But for something like this, it feels like even knowing two or three minutes off would be much better. Sure, absolutely. 
And it's true, as Mike's a good friend of mine, he's awesome. In fact, my son once worked in a lab dissecting rats, isolate eyelid cells. But anyhow, Mike is truly the world expert, the go-to person around the world for diabetes, type 1 diabetes and exercise. And I'll defer to him in 99.9% of ways. But in this particular case, I would say that continuous glucose monitoring still is invaluable. It is true, as Mike perhaps said to you, that if people are doing certain activities, glucose levels can change quickly and a glucose sensor may not pick it up at that exact moment. There can be a several minute delay. But most people who are driving, that's not really high level physical activity. And I think really in day-to-day existence, the shortcomings of glucose sensing technology are small compared to the potential benefits. The other thing is that depending on the jurisdiction and depending on the condition someone has, glucose sensing technology is often paid for by governments, provincial governments and territorial governments. It depends on the province, depends on the type of diabetes, the type of treatment, but there often is funding available to assist people. So technology is definitely one of the main things. Are there other things that you would recommend people with diabetes who are on insulin consider when they're driving? I think that for sure people should check their glucose beforehand. They should make sure that they can always have access to a carbohydrate source. If you are driving and you think you're low or heading low, it's imperative that you do several things. Number one, get off the road. But you have to get off the road safely. You know, people get into car accidents and die on the side of the 401. I think it's like a potentially dangerous place to be. So you have to get off the road, but in a safe way and as quickly as possible. If it's absolutely impossible, if you're on the 401 and you can't get off immediately, then make sure you have a carbohydrate source available, even if you empirically think you may be low, but you're not sure. And not everybody with diabetes and insulin remembers to do that. So I realize we're all human, we're all fallible, but if you're driving, you have to have a carbohydrate source but right with you, not in your glove box, because you don't want to be reaching over, taking your eyes off the road, not in the back seat, not in the trunk. You have to have on your person or in the console right beside you so that if you think, even if you're not necessary, but if you think you're low, you can treat it right away and get off the road as soon as you can. And then monitor yourself, you know, from the safe place to, to see how you're doing. I think that, uh, sorry, I don't want to talk too much, but I think education is key. And 100% of my patients who have diabetes, I advocate for diabetes education. And I don't mean from an endocrinologist like me. I can educate people, but that's not my full-time job. There are professional educators, and they are really the, the most important, most invaluable resource. I work with incredible educators at the Charles Bass Center. I work with great educators at Type 2 programs in Ajax and Scarborough, Markham, et cetera. And any listener, anybody with diabetes who hasn't met with an educator and hasn't met with them recently, I sure hope that they'll arrange to meet with an educator to make sure they have state-of-the-art knowledge. Diabetes treatment changes quickly. There's newer insulins that are less likely to cause low blood sugar that people might want to switch to or look at. The way I treat diabetes now is so different from five years ago, it'll turn your head. So people may feel they've had the education they need. Well, maybe they did, but that doesn't mean that they don't need it again. Diabetes is a rapidly evolving field. People always need to have state-of-the-art knowledge. Absolutely. It is always interesting to me as someone who spends all my time talking to people who are experts in this field. 
that things change so quickly. And we've gone from a place where we had very few options for treating diabetes to where we have quite a number of options, especially in the type 2 diabetes realm. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about related to driving is most people with type 1 are aware that if they have a low, they should wait for 45 minutes before they can get back behind the wheel of a car. I know many a person in my life whose kids were not thrilled when dad or mom had a low and couldn't go to the thing that they were looking forward to. Is that still the guidance that they should follow or have there been any changes or updates to that? Well, first of all, there are guidelines, but guidelines aren't rules and they're not laws. Guidelines are basically created by experts in the field who get together and use the most available information from science and their best judgment. It's a combination of those. So people can advocate and say, sure, wait 45 minutes. But I'm also a realist and a pragmatist. And sure, we may teach people to do that. But I know 99% of people aren't going to do that. They're going to pull over, hopefully, treat a low, see their glucose is back up, feel like they're fine, and they'll start driving again. And, you know, sure, we can espouse certain recommendations, but I think we also have to be cognizant of the fact that most people are going to do what they feel is best, not what they're necessarily dictated to. So I think, sure, that's a guideline, but I think it depends on a whole bunch of things. Let's say someone's glucose was low, but barely low, 3.9, not 2.9. And they treated it, and 15 minutes later, they feel 100%, their glucose is 7 is it realistic for that person to wait in the coffee shop for another half hour? Sure, I hope they will. Will they? Probably not. So I think we have to put it in that context. Not every person reacts to low blood glucose the same way. Not every episode of low blood glucose is the same severity or the same duration. They don't necessarily respond to treatment as quickly as somebody else. Um, the other thing I want to make sure I don't forget, we were talking about diabetes technology. And for type 1 diabetes especially, that's invaluable, is I want to make sure that anybody with type 1 diabetes, or many people with type 2 on insulin, also are aware of what's called hybrid closed-loop systems, which are incredibly helpful at avoiding hypoglycemia, whether you're driving or not. So again, the fancy term is hybrid closed-loop therapy. And there's several options in Canada. There's more coming online. There's something called Control IQ. There's something called the Medtronic 780G system, and there's something called the Omnipod 5. And I hope that anybody with type 1 reads about those online. I hope anybody with type 2 on insulin therapy, especially more than one injection a day, goes online and learns about it because those are really game changers. And I think the best way to learn about these new technologies like that is to go to YouTube. And there's hundreds, maybe thousands of bloggers who I think present things in a relatable way. You can go to a company website, but hey, if I ran a company, which I don't, I'd be inclined to promote my product. That's human nature. That's the way business is. So I think you'll get more dispassionate, objective advice by going to YouTube bloggers. And you know, sure, maybe they're not healthcare professionals, but I find most of those videos are really well done and informative and generally quite objective. Yeah, I found the same when I went to TikTok, which again, <laughs> do not take that as medical advice, but there are a lot of people who are using these devices who are interested and really just want to share their own experiences. And those can be really, really helpful to find out because as we've talked about on the show many times, there are lots of different options. What works for one person may not work for you. What works with your lifestyle may not work for someone else. 
So always, always, always you want to try a few different things, learn as much as you can before you make any decisions. And this is also another plug for those incredible certified diabetes educators, because they are also a wonderful, wonderful source of information if you are looking at starting or using one of those technologies. So we will give that caveat and that plug for them. Well, one other thing that that reminds me of Krista is that although we routinely recommend people on insulin therapy to wear a medical alert, most people in my experience don't. And I say medical alert, not medical alert. Medical alert is a trade name. Medical alert is basically anything you wear. You can wear a necklace, uh, something on your wrist. You can have a tattoo, although I'm not necessarily recommending tattoos, that says you're on insulin. But I'm not advocating you spend 100 bucks on a medical alert. If you go on Amazon, go on the web, for five or 10 bucks, you can find something. They make them in rubber. They make them in wristwatches. Like anything that says the word diabetes on it. Because I'll give you a perfect example. I had a, again, patient who was driving and stopped at a stop sign, but didn't start again. He just stopped at the stop sign because he was low and confused. And thankfully, he stopped as opposed to driving. But anyhow, and the police came over, thought he was drunk, and put him in handcuffs. They were going to arrest him for drunk driving. And then they realized he had a medical alert that said he had diabetes on it. And they realized he needed an ambulance. He didn't need a police car. And God knows what would have happened if they had arrested him, not knowing he had low blood glucose. So I emphasize that anybody on insulin, whether you're type 1 or type 2 diabetes, should wear something that makes it readily identifiable you have diabetes. And you can get stuff that's not stigmatizing. There's lots of things that look nice that you feel comfortable wearing. But especially when you're driving, I would recommend wearing it. I recommend anytime you're out of the house, but especially when driving. Yeah, I would 100% agree that that is a great thing. I would also love if we could get to a point in the world where we don't have this stigma and everyone felt comfortable disclosing, but that's a topic for another show. But we are almost out of time, and this has been an amazing conversation. I think I've learned a lot, so I'm assuming people that are listening will have also. Is there anything that we have missed that you would like to add? Not really, Krista. You're very thorough, and I appreciate the time, the great questions. What I would encourage people to do is to learn about the issue. If you do a Google search, just type in my name, Bloomer, hypoglycemia and driving. And again, it's public domain. You'll come across the article that my colleagues and I wrote about the topic. You'll come across details about the different trials where people ended up in this situation. And there's lots of information there. Some of it's terrifying, but it's also informative, hopefully in a way that will lead all of us to just treat this more seriously, more proactively. And, you know, I really, really hope that I never, ever end up having a patient or even anybody I know in a situation like I've encountered before. It's just such a tragedy and it's an avoidable one. So thank you for helping spread the word. Absolutely. Thank you for doing this. I think it's important not to scare people, but to inform them. And I think that it was really interesting for me, who spends a lot of time driving with people who have type 1. But uh, I definitely want them to be aware of this as well. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Hey, thank you for your time. And thanks for having contacted me. I appreciate it. A huge thank you to Dr. Bloomer for joining us today. If you liked today's show, please be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help others to find the show. If you'd like more information on this topic or others related to diabetes, 
visit diabetes.ca or contact Diabetes Canada at info at diabetes.ca. You can also find us on social media on all the platforms at Diabetes Canada. Thanks for listening.